This morning's Old Testament scripture reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 30 through chapter 32 and ending in verse 47. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cares for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he sucked him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of a grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had never come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will expend my arrows on them, and they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them, 
with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror. For young man and woman alike, the nourishing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom, and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drunk the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. From the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with me, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of the song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And then Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel. He said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, and they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. In the New Testament, in John chapter 17, is our New Testament reading. Beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Okay, I'm sorry about that long reading. I wasn't, I mean, I'm not sorry, but I am. And, uh, you know, just like, what do you do? Like, scripture is so rich. And um, so here's, um, actually, I have a question first. Um, Who here has not ever been out of the country? Wow, that's actually not that many. Okay, I got a question for you. What are Americans like? Rude. Have you, you, you haven't met, left the country before? Americans are rude. You met people from other countries? Okay. That's a little bit unfair. Rude and friendly. We are rude and friendly, I guess. Uh, someone asked me this question one time, and I hadn't been out of the country before, and I just was totally blank. And I was like, oh, I felt so... I felt so dumb, you know? And, uh, but the point is, you, just, you know, what you haven't experienced, you just don't know. And so that was kind of my thought with this, just to, you know, if, if I'm going to get up here and, and preach out of the Word, it may as well be something where I have, I have this experience overseas, and, and I, I see the, wor- the Word in different ways. Um, and so I was hoping that I'd be able to share some of that with you today. Um, so... Uh, you know, like one of, one of the things, for instance, and how I landed on Deuteronomy 32 is, you know, I get to see things like idols and, and demons in, in different ways than you would ever see them here. Or maybe, maybe not than you would ever see them, but then I think most people do. So that's how I landed here. And then I've got this giant passage and what, what to do with it, you know. Um, it's so rich. There's, uh, the language is, is very very intense in some places. Um, the Hebrew is a little bit weird. There's some words that only show up here. Uh, there's uh, some text-critical text issues. There's just a, a lot going on there, and I'm not going to have time to talk about it all. I, I, did, I did look into it, and I did research it all, and I've done all the exegesis, but I just, I just want to say, like, we're going to have to fly through this and... Um, just scratch the surface, but hopefully to God's glory. Um, the problem with just looking at a passage, even when you read 47 verses or 48 verses, is um, context, right? So if I had my way, every time we read the Bible, um, you could read it in multiple versions and in the original language and in its immediate context, you know, but then also in its broader context, you know, like what section of the book is it in? Because it's a different section of Deuteronomy than the whole thing. Or, 
um, in, in the whole book, right? And then in that genre, maybe, so this is like, this is law, this is Torah. Um, and then in that whole Testament, the old, this, the old Testament, and then in the scope of the whole Bible and the scope of redemptive uh, history, what is going on here? Uh, I wish we could read it back to front and front to back um, all at the same time. But we can't do that. So, um, so let's see what we can do. All right. Um, well, we, we can just start out by saying Deuteronomy is shaped as basically a, a covenant renewal. Um, that's my title. So Deuteronomy is shaped as a, a covenant renewal. And um, God had made a, a covenant, an agreement with, with, his, with his people, right? Um, they, would be, they would be his people. And he, he would be their God. Um, that he would bless all of the earth through them. I mean, I'm talking, this is, this is uh, Adam, this is Abraham, this is, this is Noah, this is Moses, the whole, the whole package. He's, he's creating a people, right? Um, and he also promised them that they would be with him in the, uh, in the land, that he would show them. And so now they're going into that land. This, it's time. And, um, and so they're, they're getting ready, right? So uh, up to this point, it's been uh, a lot of law. There's been some narrative, but it's just, it's a lot of law. It's um, Moses addressing people with the law. But then when you start, when you get to chapter 28, it's Moses is talking to Israel about the law. And so you've got blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, you got, he's sort of renewing, he's uh, reviewing a little bit of their history and, and, and digging into this renew, renewal of the covenant. Predicts their disobedience when they go over, okay? Um, and then he calls them to repentance and he gives this sort of like, you've got, you've got life in front of you and you've got death. Choose life, choose life, right? Uh, that's, that's chapter 30. He reads, he reads the law to them, commissions Joshua, and he says, okay, I'm going to sing this song. You guys are, and as he introduces the song, he's, he tells them they're going to be disobedient. Again, and then sings the song, or whatever he does with the song. Predicts his death, then he blesses all the, the tribes, and then he dies. And that's, that's, the, rest of, that's the rest of Deuteronomy. So, so there we are, kind of towards the bottom there, and Moses' song is what this is called. So let's start. Uh, with the song, so it, it, it's a it's a bit difficult in other ways too because it's is it is it prophecy or is it is it sort of like a law document or is it just sheer hymnic poetry? Uh, one one scholar called it a prophetic criticism uh, of Israel. You'll see that it's it's talking about Israel's future, but it talks about it like it's past, which isn't all that uncommon with prophecy. So. Um, there's a lot of different ways to divide the song depending on what genre you want to put it in and, and what you're looking at. So here's just sort of what I'm going to give to you. Uh, you've got his initial praise, which calls heaven and earth together as witnesses against the people. Um, uh, you've got the faithful God and faithless people, which sort of acts as an introduction. You talk about how good God is and how the people have dared to transgress him. Um, Israel forsakes God. Oh, sorry. God's goodness. Missed that one. God's goodness to Israel. You get a huge section with 
talks about God being a rock, which I wish I could talk about that. I can't. Um, God being a rock, God being like an eagle, um, leading and guiding his people. It, um, so there's, then there's uh, Israel forsaking God, which is just a shocking part of the song if you, if you look at, the, and we'll, we'll get back to that as well. Um, then God's punishment for Israel, which is ultimately, I, I don't know if you caught it, but it's ultimately so that he's known, right? It's, it, it's not just about just punishing wrong, but he wants to be known. So then, uh, then he limits his punishment, which even more so, is so that he, he just he wants to be known, okay? And then you've got these foolish nations, and God's going to deal with them. And again, if we could dive deeper, you would see that there's, there's also a plan for the nations. And I just don't have time for that today, lamenting that. Um, but um, so then the, the true God is the one who brings vengeance. That was all this, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And, and I want to say here too that uh, vengeance is not like avenging, like I'm going to get you back for that kind of vengeance as much as, um, well, uh, uh, Mendenhall in, in his book, The Tenth Generation, he talked about this and he called it uh, the exercise of power by the highest legitimate authority for the protection of his own subject. It's God being the champion of his people. So think about that when you hear Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I have power to protect my people. Um, so, then there's a closing praise. And um, that's the song. And like I said, we can't talk about all of it, but I want to go first, jump straight forward to what, um, what I see as the most verbally intense section of the song. And that's, Verses 15 through 18, you've, um, and it's kind of a turning point in the song as well, um, and it's, it's Israel's idolatry is what it's, what it's talking about. So here's, I just made this little chart because it's fun, and look at that. Um, all these, th- these themes, these things that were being talked about before, uh, your father who made you, you've got the rock, your fo- these foreign gods, and all these, this language that was being talked about, it's coming back in, in just in these quick three verses. Um, as well as you've got this, all this repetition with um, where it talks about, um, gosh, uh, you, these strange gods, these abominations, uh, these no gods. It's got, it just so much is happening in these few little verses right here. Um, Israel's going after no gods, these um, verse 12, did I have that one up there? Yeah, there was no foreign God with you. God was their leader, right? Um, and yet they're compelled to turn to these demons. It's, it's really, really, really shocking. Israel was literally bowing down to these, these wooden and metal images. But I think we need to talk because... I mean, what are idols? What's idolatry? The, the, the trouble is, when I walk around Central Florida, I don't, I don't really see people bowing down to wooden and metal images. Um, and I wonder if that creates a disconnect um, when we read the Old Testament. Because people do bow down. Um, 
And so do you. So do I. So, so what's idolatry? What is it at the core? Um, well, let me start with a story. I, I took uh, a class on scripture engagement uh, when I was pre- preparing to go uh, to South Asia for the first time. We'd already been in, in South Sudan, but um, so I um, had had some classes of my own um, before that. I'd had some experiences of my own. I'd already been to Indonesia, the jungles of Indonesia. I'd been to the, the bush in South Sudan. Um, and my professor, who is himself a, a veteran of missions, 20 plus years, was talking about animism. I'm like, and I, I, he was talking about maybe South America or something. And I'd heard stories about Papua New Guinea. I mean, it's just like everywhere. I was like, there's something, there's something very, very similar about all these things. Um, things like just the ties to nature, the, there's uh, specific like ancestor worship and um, even certain things, like certain instruments, things that happen. There's very, very sim- similar things. So I asked the professor, I said, how is it that these cultures all around the world have, have done animism in very similar ways? And you know what he told me? He told me they look the same because basically they are the same. People have felt needs and an inclination to worship, which means that they have a natural inclination to turn, to, their, to turn their felt needs into God's. If you forget that God, so if you forget that God is the creator and sustainer of creation and you have felt needs for crops, you're going to turn to the sun and to the rain and start worshiping, right? Or uh, if you have felt needs for wisdom and familial approval, you're going to start worshiping your ancestors if you forget that God gives wisdom. And that his, his approval is ultimate. People have a natural inclination to turn their felt needs into God's. And you're no different. And neither am I. You just live in a country that's developed enough that you don't have to worry about crops. And we're enlightened enough to know that if we want wisdom, we've got books and we've got Google. So, ultimately though, Anything you want more than God becomes your God. Usually, it's not bad things. Usually, it's good things that you turn into God things, which is a bad thing. Um, I'll just give like a, a, for instance, an example. So avoiding pain is a general human instinct. God's wired us that way. That's, that's fine. I think it's a good thing. Uh, but Americans take this a bit far. Some will focus on safety. Um, but a bigger one that I've noticed being out, um, being overseas where life is just hard is Americans go after comfort. Comfort is the thing, probably the most dangerous thing in America. I don't know. Um, and even these things aren't really all that bad, but when they come ultimate for you, they're gods. And you want this God and you need this God, but how will you get it? It's a question, right? How are you going to get it? You need some kind of a mediator who has access to it. So what's a mediator? Um, well, we know Jesus Christ is our mediator, right? But if you're going after some other God, you've got this 
other thing. One pastor called it a functional savior. So how it starts is, instead of doing everything you can to get God, you go after these God things, right? Like safety or comfort. Uh, So to not have these things becomes your functional hell, right? And... um, So uh, if, it's, if it's safety, being, being unsafe is your functional hell. You don't, you don't, you don't want to go there. Or if comfort is your, is your God, then being uncomfortable, oh, I don't, I don't want to, I can't go there, I can't go there. And so the functional Savior is the thing that will rescue you from your functional hell, and it will lead you to your God. That's what a functional Savior is. And so if comfort is your God, um, your functional hell becomes being uncomfortable. And the thing that will allow you to escape your uncomfortable hell is mostly money, I think, in America. Um, but I don't know. A bigger house, better AC. Nicer. I, I, I don't even know. But so you, you go, I'm, money can get you all sorts of comfortable things, can it? I, I, think, I really do think that's a, um, that, it be, that becomes the functional savior when you're going after comfort as your God. Um, so what's idolatry? Um, idolatry is this whole twisted process. And an idol, an idol, the idol is the functional savior, okay? The idol is the thing that represents the God that you've set up. Um, so I have examples. We got money will get you your comfort. Look at that, 1950s style. Then here's Ganesh. Ganesh will get you Prosperity. There's Baal. Baal will get you fertility. Or, I mean, he was, there's, Baal was multifaceted, but that's just one of the, one of the things about him. Um, so you have your functional God, you're, you have your God, and the functional Savior, your idol is the thing that you think is going to help you get it. Um, it's idolatry is bowing down literally or, or figuratively. It's going after something other than the one true God. Anything, anything other than the one true God. But more importantly, maybe more importantly, is that idolatry is an open refusal to bear the image of God. Matt, what in the crazy are you talking about? Well, Think about it. So we were, we were made to bear God's image. We were meant to be God's images, like little statues that would say, the king, he reigns here. The king, he reigns here. And this is what he looks like, right? So then to twist that so obscenely as to not only deny that created purpose that he's given us, but to create our own images, these, oh, this will work, right? And then to worship them, there's something deeply, deeply evil in it. You're, you were created ultimately to be comforted by God and to forsake him and to pursue comfort as, as a superior God and then to bow down to money or something because you think that will get you comfort. That's, that's evil. And it twists your image to be... The, it twists the image you were created to bear and it mocks God the creator. 
So to be God's image is to show the, the world who God is and to know him and to become like him and to make him known. If you're going after idols, you won't know him. You'll become like the idols. That's in Psalm, Psalm 115. They became like the idols they created. You just become like them. And if you're going after idols, you can't make him known. And on that last point, let me say this. What is the church if we're not spreading God's image? What is OGC if we're not spreading God's image? It's like, sorry to say, it's like a weird social club. Like it doesn't make any sense. If you lose your zeal for local transformation and for foreign missions, you lose part, (laughs) part of what it means to be God's image bearer. You just do. So, what are you wasting your time and your passion on? Netflix, video games, sporting events, coddling your kids and making sure they're protected at all times in every way, building up your career. Why would you settle for dopamine hits and false security when the one true God, he wants to be known, he wants to be shown. It's defaming to God and it's dehumanizing to us. John Piper said it this way. Oh, I I have that slide. Yes. If we find God to be so boring or so negligible that we must put other things in his place that really satisfy us more than he does, then we not only offend him, but we also destroy ourselves. And those two things make God angry. And this is where the wrath that we see in the song comes from. But first... Let me say this. This is one of the things that is so awful that I've seen in, in Hinduism. It's that you get these distorted images, like literally distorted. Like it's a monkey head and, a, and there's like nine arms and what? It's, the people have not only made these grotesque images, but then bowed down to them. This is, this is where I stay when I go to the, to the village to do translation work. I've got a small room, and this is the next room right over there. Look at that. I have all sorts of fun abominations that are, I, just, I can't even, I don't even know. The landlords obviously don't know the Lord, and, um, but they think that this is, this is doing something for them, and it's getting them somewhere, and it's getting them something, and it's not God. Um. I've got a friend who, who's working in insider movements uh, amongst Hindus, and I was talking with him, and he hadn't been thinking about these things, and, but he, did, he told me, he said, and he didn't even quite even know how to put it really, but he said, there's something damaging to the human soul when someone actually bows down to a physical idol. And it's because we are made to be God's image and to spread God's image and be like if you made a pot of clay to hold some water. And that, that pot of clay decided to just shatter in a, in a hundred pieces, all flat pieces. You can't hold any water in them. So what are you going to do with that clay? You're going to chuck it in the fire and make something new, aren't you? And no matter how calculated that is, that's, that's wrath. And so when Israel goes after evil instead of God, God has to do something about that, right? In, in verse 4, it made a pretty big deal about how just God is, which seems normal to us maybe, but if you compare him with other gods, it's not true. God is just. Um, so his, his wrath comes in the form of enemies. 
animals, plagues, pestilence, hunger, but it's not the end. Right? God has mercy. God would have been righteous in destroying them, just like your pot. You destroy your pot without thinking about it. God would have been just to do the same, but he gave mercy in at least two ways. He didn't fully destroy them, which he could have, and he defeated their enemies. He took vengeance. He was, the, he was their champion. Okay. But um, if you look, if you do prosodic analysis on the song, I hardly know what that is, but um, you find that at uh, the center of this song, it's physically constructed to point to verses 26 and 27. God's mercy and his grace where he lets off. No matter how shocking our sin is, how vile it is, how grotesque it is, God's grace and mercy is always going to be the answer. It's always going to be the point. Um, God is always outdoing sin, sometimes with wrath, but so much more um, with his grace. So here, um, there's actually one more thing. Um, if we step back even further, we see another grace. God didn't fully destroy them. God did save them from their enemies. But there's another grace. Um, and if you look at, there we go. If you look at the song, I got a chiasm. I'm doing OT. I'm doing poetry. I got to have a chiasm, right? Look at that. Right there in the middle is the song of Moses and what's around it. God gives them, Moses gives them the song. And what's around that? The Torah. I don't know if you can read that. I'm sorry. But the law, the law is the context of this whole thing. It's, it's this re-giving of the law. It's, it's structurally, it's there. You have the words of this Torah, all the words of this Torah. It flanks the song. Um, and uh, so God had already given them a great mercy in the law. God shows who he is. They could know him, not, the, not their false gods. They could know him through his law. It shows who we were meant to be as image bearers. It's this blessing command thing that, that God gave at creation. Remember? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. God blessed them saying that. He did that to Adam, Noah, Abraham. Like he, just, there's, he wants us to be like him, to spread his image. And in these things is life. If you, if you zoom out even more, Look at that. In chapter 30, there was this, um, he said, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. And then in verse 47, we read this one. It is no empty word for you, but your very life. The word of God is our life. So we have God's word in the whole Bible. Well, not everybody. And I think, I think, that's, um, I think that's a shame to us. But um, yeah, so we have the, the law, which they had. We have the histories. We have 
prophets, um, and we have the New Testament, all of which point to Jesus. Um, God is so close to us in his word. What a grace. Um, But don't overlook the amazing mercy that God's word is to us, that every story gives us a glimpse of who God is and what he's doing. Every command, I said that, every command shows us how we get to be a part by being his image. That's why the psalmist could say, oh, how I love your law. You ever wonder, like, the law is full of a bunch of commands. How could you love that? It's because we get to see who God is and we get to see who we're meant to be. Paul said it too. He said, I delight in the law of God, my inner being. God's word is how we know God. And knowing God, it's life. This is all the mercy that Israel should have needed. Um, and if, but if there's one big message in this song, if we're honest, it's that Yahweh is, oh gosh, I didn't even mention that. We read that, didn't we? This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And if, and if you look at this song, if there's one big message in it for the, for the people of Israel, is that there's one true God. These no gods are no gods. We are made to know him, to bear his image, to spread that image. The horror of idolatry is that we forfeit that image. We create others and bow down to them. Instead, Hinduism has its grotesque physical images. And, you know, they've got nine arms that symbolizes strength. And somehow a monkey symbolizes wisdom and an elephant prosperity. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, Americans do the same. We distort God-given gifts like love and joy and turn them into things that they're never meant to be. And they're not the one true God. But God's word has the power to reveal the one true God. Again and again so that we would really know him and it will renew us in his image. Oh gosh, I'm almost out of time. I wanted to share one thing with you that um, you notice that the song said demons? It talked about idols and no, these strange gods, and it said demons. And um, what's the connection between idol and demons? Idols and demons? It's, you know, it's really not clear. But what is clear is that human made, though our false gods may be, there's real spiritual power behind them. Um, I don't, and there's no point in like just diving straight into that. I think Romans 16, 19 is good for us. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Um, there are no Bible verses that, are, that demand that we understand the in, ins and outs of demons and how they work. Um, but all of Scripture urges that we know God and, uh, and it gives us the means to do it. So I want to give one example and then hopefully I can finish fast because I've got one minute left and I'm going to go over that. Um, and hopefully it'll demonstrate what I'm talking about and bring us back to the power of God's word. So in the, in the course of my life, specifically my time overseas, I've had one and only one interaction with an evil spirit. 
It was oppressing uh, a young lady who attended our church there, our first year in South Asia. Um, But it did more than oppress her. It it accompanied her. So er early in her life, um, she had a really traumatic experience. She was like three years old. Um, It put kind of a hole in her heart. And because she was so young, had no, no godly presence in her life, um, it allowed evil, an evil spirit to, to slip into her life unattested. And it was a spirit of hatred, but it was also this companion for her. And um, it was her only companion at a time where that's what she needed the most. It kept her company over the years, and it certainly had no desire to leave. And as we were praying for her, I felt pretty clueless. No idea what was going on. Um, others in the room had apparently seen this sort of thing before, and so they were, they were doing their own thing, and I don't know. But I mean, what, do you, what do you ask God for in that moment? I certainly take, take this thing out, and some were commanding it, whatever. It just, I had no idea, so I just started reading Scripture. <laughs> I was like, and it, it didn't like that. It really didn't. You know, it was, um, <laughs> there was, there was one point where um, it was like, where was, because they were like, you know, they were talking about Jesus and how Jesus loves her and this thing doesn't love her. And, and it was like, where was Jesus when she was three years old? And, and I, had, I had John 1 in my hand and I was like, in the beginning was the word. Like he's always been there for her, you know? And, um, I went to Romans 8 at one point. I was just coming to, and, and actually I think the, the very first verse I read, I said something, and this, this lady who, who was there was like, keep reading. So I just kept reading stuff, and I, you know, I went to Romans 8 at one point, and it was just, I was reading about who God is and who she is. And, and that spirit didn't like that. It wasn't very fond of that. Why? because it didn't want her to know the truth about God or herself. But we did, because we were fighting for her life. There's one true God. And that's the main point of Moses' song. He's far greater than Israel's sin and your sin, and in him alone is life. Where else are you, you going to find life? I mean, the, the love that they write about in songs, it's not life. The comfort that this country tries to promise it's not life getting recognitions from your friend or your boss or your spouse it's not life seeing a constant smile on your kid's face is so good but it's not life true life comes from knowing God Jesus bought that life Jesus showed us that life led him straight to the cross and it pursues you every day it's right here in his word so let's dig in. Let's go show the world, okay? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Without it, we wouldn't know you and we wouldn't know life. Um, we're so thankful that you're merciful and you're gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You do good. Please show us who you are through your word. Show us who we're meant to be. And please, God, give us strength, give us wisdom, give us passion to show the world. I ask you in Jesus' name.
Amen.